welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And usually I can't say this, but uh, my guest today is coming from Oahu, the most populous island of the Hawaiian Islands, I would say. And uh, it's an old friend of roughly 42 years. And Bill Gwaltney, and I, I could sit and read his CV, his curriculum vitae to you, but it's so long that we would lose our entire amount of time we have for this. So let's let some of this get revealed by talking to Bill. Bill, how are you? Great, Tim. Good to see you. And even though we're close, we're not that close. It's a long swim over the big island. It really is. And despite our closeness, uh, getting on a plane is never easy or um, whatever. It's like your good friend who lives 500 miles away on the mainland, you just don't go there every day. That's right. That's exactly right. But anyway, it's great to be here. and It's great to be talking about interpretation. Well, I can tell you that when I go look through my photos, I see a photo of a young Bill Gwaltney in the Nature Center of Pueblo, where I was working in 1980 to 93. And you came over and helped us there uh, when you were actually working um, at Bensel Fort. But I want to back up from that. You grew up in D.C. Right. And my yeah. brother and I are proud to be able to say we are seventh generation Washingtonians from inside the city, which is probably some of the rarest animals on the planet. Yeah. And an African-American young man in a community that is largely African-American, I believe, in, in many Ab Absolutely. In fact, um, my parents were teachers. My grandparents were teachers. So many of the people that we knew in the community were teachers or doctors or lawyers, but very much professional people um, who had established uh, a very specific set of expectations for the future. Part of how I got into interpretation is that Many of those people uh, and, and their kids, my colleagues, were interested in what was going on in the 1960s. My grandfather, having been born in the, in the 19th century, helped me get interested in the, the 1860s. So I was interested in the 60s too, but another 60s. The other 60s. I, I confess my grandfather was born uh, slightly, just a couple of years after the Civil War. So uh, I... But I didn't get I didn't have that kind of family. My one grandfather was a grave digger. The other was a farmer. And mm -hmm. uh, my one grandmother was illiterate. And the other one was an, a nurse and a school teacher and valued education above everything in the world. Uh, I so when I think of you in the D.C. area and then think of all the remote rural locations you worked. What led into that transition from. Uh, city guy to somebody who, who who literally has worked in very, very unique lo locations in rural communities, and we'll get later to Paris, France. Sure, sure. Well, it's been, a, it's been quite the ride. I think that in many ways, um, I have always had sort of a duality in, in my life because my father's side of the family comes from rural Virginia down on the James River, and those folks were largely professional fishermen or or boat builders they worked in the 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 uh 
I'm sorry, uh, the shipyards at Newport News. So there was a very rural side. Uh, my grandfather on that side actually got in trouble for making moonshine during Prohibition. But my other grandfather, very much from a, a, an urban perspective, uh, but we, we never lost touch with our rural roots. In fact, my grandparents purchased a farmhouse um, in a place near Annapolis, Maryland in the 1930s just in case war should come, he was already thinking about what was going on in Europe and a place to raise vegetables and catch fish and raise chickens and, and have eggs and things like that. So we always sort of had this duality, um, but it was interesting in that when I got interested in the out of doors, and we'll talk, I'm sure, about my time with the scouts, I asked my dad to, to share with me some of his outdoor knowledge, and he was very hesitant to do so. He had worked so hard to move from a country life to a city life and to go from a person with a, a pretty rudimentary early education to a fairly sophisticated later education. He didn't really want to align himself with things that were purely rural. So a lot of the interest that I've developed over time, I had to, to, to find out how it was done by talking to other people, listening to other people, reading books, and just going out and experiencing those various and sundry things. Interesting. So I, I think that, you know, like a lot of people in the 60s, um, our parents and grandparents took us to, to Gettysburg, to uh, Fort McHenry. Um, there were national park areas, and I can't call them parks necessarily, but the city of Washington, as you would know, is ringed with these fortifications from the Civil War. And there was one literally right down the street. And we'd go and play there as kids. And our nickname for it was Porkchop Hill. It, it had nothing to do, of course, with, with Korea. It had nothing to do with anything but its Civil War origins. But it was a great, safe place to go play. And there were still battlements there then. And there are still are battlements there now in invested in protecting the city of Washington from Confederate attack. It's amazing. I watch these young comedians now who go into urban areas and hold a microphone up to a young person and say, uh, where is Italy? And they'll go, I think it's in London somewhere. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm aware I grew up in a small town in Illinois. Abraham Lincoln served in the state legislature there and walked the streets of Vandalia. I didn't get taught that as a kid. Literally, history can be all around you and you can be missing it because- You're absolutely right. And Well, I, I gotta tell you that in, in that's so right. My grandfather, who was born in 1888 and died in 1984, remembered that he had seen in person every president from FDR to Richard Nixon, wow. somehow just being in Washington. I don't think he went to the White House more than maybe once, but he just, he, he saw Truman out for a walk. Wow. Uh, I don't know where he saw all of the rest of these folks, but he was, you know, a resident of Washington, D.C. to the point where at some point he saw them in person, all, all of those presidents uh, between one and the other. But I will also tell you that um, he was somebody I got very close to. And uh, my interest in history was something that that certainly got him interested in telling more stories. He would take me down to the Library of Congress 
um, after he noticed I was interested in the old John Wayne black and white westerns. And he said, if you're really interested in history, let's try to figure out how we can learn more. So he would go down on Fridays to the Library of Congress and draw down books, specifically books about the American West. And on Saturdays, we'd go down and look through those books. And in many ways, we were looking for African-American photographic images. And yes, they weren't prevalent, but they were there. So that got my interest not only stoked about history and American history, but African-American history. And after he saw that, I'll never forget, one day he went down into the basement and you heard him rumbling through things and opening boxes and closing shelves and shutting doors. And he finally came back up with his object wrapped in a red railroad bandana. And he had me open it and it was the relic frame of an 1858 Remington cap and ball revolver his father had picked up after the Battle of Antietam. Oh my. And that's still in the family. I've restored it to a sort of working condition, but it's not important as a firearm. It's important as a talisman of the past and as really an entree into the world of history. Yeah, makes sense. I also think here you're in this very historical setting near the nation's capital but you got into scouting and I, I was into scouting as well but scouting for me was this rural community where you you went down to a fishing pond and slept in a tent and... no that's well that's that's fun I mean I did have a wonderful experience with scouting uh, both as a cub scout a weeblo a boy scout um, I had a fantastic pair of scoutmaster assistant scoutmasters the scoutmaster has passed away. He was uh, in his late 90s, and he had been the first sergeant of the headquarters company of the 369th Infantry Regiment in World War II in the Pacific. That is the old, um, you know, they call them in the, in the, the uh, First World War, the, the Rattlers, but this was an African-American group, originally the 15th New York Regiment of National Guard, and uh, so he was a leader, a non-commissioned officer in that in that uh, company with that regiment. And we didn't know it at the time, but we were at the, the living, the camping that we were doing as scouts and much of the discipline and much of the learning was really from a World War II Army model. Come on. Uh, today, we call it living history. We didn't know it was living history at the time. That's the only camping he knew. And uh, it's the way we did the camping, and we had a great time. The other uh, assistant scoutmaster, and, and, and Phil DeWeese, was African-American from Louisville, Kentucky. But his partner in crime, Bart Jones, uh, and I've just been recently back in touch with him. He's now 85, uh, a white guy from Washington, D.C., who was a Latin teacher at the prestigious Gonzaga High School. So you had, um, at, Phil was a, a working engineer on the Metro project, the Metro subway in Washington, and Bart was a, a, um, a Latin teacher in the, in the 1960s and 70s. So a really interesting dichotomy there. Both of them dedicated outdoors people. We were close to the Appalachian Trail. We were close to lots of national parks and state parks. We camped every month, rain, shine, snow, mud, didn't matter. And we did that for years. Phil 
saw something in me and did two things that I think changed my life. At one point, we sat down in the middle of a trail at scout camp in Virginia, and he said, you can do anything you want, regardless of what that might be. Um, that was a perspective my own father didn't have. Um, he was so worried about discrimination and, and racial you know, hatred, he was hoping to find me a job in the post office, which would be safe, reliable, and would provide an income. But Phil DeWeese convinced me that I could do anything I said. And um, the other thing he did is on a canoe trip down the Potomac, we were going through some pretty fast walk. We're going to split the canoes up like this, but Gwaltney, you're going to take my son in your canoe because I know you're going to get him through. And giving me more responsibility that probably was my, my Ken really helped me change how I looked at the world, at myself, and at leadership. So I give Phil, Phil DeWeese a lot, a lot of credit for the, the future that I had. And I was very much with him um, after I had had a pretty substantial park service career and met with him at his house. He was beginning to have dementia but I presented him with a park ranger flat hat of which he was inordinately proud. Wow, that's great. I, I cannot say that I got to see my old scouting scoutmaster years later and talk to him, but, uh, and I didn't have that kind of relationship with him, what you're describing. He, he just was a good outdoorsman and he took us out a lot and we, we slept in the snow and we slept in the mud and we, we caught fish in the middle of the night and it was great fun. Well, I, I can tell you, Tim, that I, I also went on um, at my at my parents' suggestion to Philmont Scout Ranch in 1971 and had a fantastic experience in New Mexico, my first trip to the American West, although I was already interested and excited about the West. Uh, what I did not know at the time is that my mom was going through a very difficult fight with stage four breast cancer. And everyone in the family told me later that she would not pass until I'd completed my trek in New Mexico. Um, it was a 10 or 15 day trek through the, the Rocky Mountains, the Sangre de Cristos actually. And when I returned tired and worn and my shoes in, in shreds, uh, there was a message that I needed to get on a plane and go back home because my mom was actively dying. I got home just in time to see her before she passed, uh, my first time on an airplane. Wow. So it was her insistence on that outdoor experience that, that also affected me. And then because of that experience, the next year I got a letter inviting me to be staff at the Goshen Scout Reservation, Virginia, a job I took. And uh, I was, you know, walked in a counselor in training and walked out a camp director over a period of six years. So, you know, scouting had a very big hold uh, early in my life. And I continued my connection with scouting, even to coming to Hawaii um, and was an assistant scoutmaster here and also in France and also in Texas and, 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 and in Colorado. So I've had a lot of time on target, but um, I think it's time for me to, to stand down more and more young people seem to be interested in what's on their phone as opposed to the, the outdoor skills that I was so excited about and, and remain excited about. Yeah. I've sort of substituted 
um, scouting for now with primitive technology. And I'm actually making fairly decent arrowheads out of stone and beer bottle bottoms. Uh, unlike Volcanoc, there seems to be an inexhaustible supply of beer bottles. We're really good with those on this island. So <laughs> you, you'd find yeah, a lot. Yeah, they're good over here too. But but they, they have a recyclable use. I've been making making some better and better ones all the time. You know, when I met you and you were working at Bensol Fort, and then through the years we had contact and occasional time together, but but not really enough to get in any great depth. And so in my mind, I thought you worked at Bensol Fort for several years. And then in looking at your CV, I realized you worked there and left and worked there and left and worked there and left and worked there. How did yeah. that happen? Because you've, you've had some really iconic National Park Service jobs in important African-American history stories. And, and then you've had these American West ones that were more uniquely the mountain man traders mm -hmm. and Native Americans and that sort of thing. So. How, how did that emerge? Well, I think that, that it attracted me first because I literally, you know, when I went off to college, my dad, who was, as I said, a teacher, my mom, my grandparents, all teachers. After my mom died, my dad got my 13-year-old my brother and my 15-year-old self to sit down at the dining room table. And he said, you know, your mom's gone, but she has worked hard and I've worked hard. So you boys can do something in life that you want to do and will enjoy doing because you'll be doing it for a long time. He said, I got to tell you, though, whatever you do, don't become a teacher. Teachers don't get much money. They don't get much respect. Um, it's, you know, we'd like you to do something more and different than being a teacher. So I thought, well, OK. And I said what every self-respecting 15-year-old boy would say to his dad, which is, yeah, whatever. So I go off to high school, finish high school, go off to college, come home with really good grades from college. And I said, well, dad, you know, I, I think I know what I want to do. He said, what? I said, I think I want to be a park ranger. He said, a park ranger? I thought I told you not to become a teacher. I said, no. I said, park ranger, not teacher. He said, fool, a park ranger is nothing but a teacher with a hat. And in so many ways, he was just exactly right. Wow. Um, so I, I, I literally, you know, walked across the stage, got my diploma, and then I bought a bus ticket all the way across country. And one of the places I, I went to very intentionally was Ben's Old Ford, which had just opened up the year before. So it opened up in 1976. This was 1977. And I went in there and, and met people and met the staff and the superintendent and, and learned a little blacksmithing during that short trip. And they said, you like this stuff? I said, yeah, the, the Western history, specifically the fur trade, is something I'm interested in. And we'll talk in a minute about why I have been interested in the fur trade as well. And they said, really? I, yeah, you like this stuff? Yeah. Well, okay, then we'll hire you next summer. And they did. And so in the meantime, they suggested I go back to Washington and work, if possible, on the National Mall. And there were plenty of opportunities because the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial were not really places people stayed for long. So there was always some turnover. And I walked into the HR office 
at the National Capital Region. I gave this woman this wonderful 30-minute briefing on why they should hire me. And she looked at her watch and she said, Wednesday. And I said, what about Wednesday? She said, if you show up Wednesday, you can be a park ranger. Oh my. <laughs> they were hiring 12 people. So I showed up on Wednesday and then they took me to the Jefferson Memorial and there was a room there where they had all of these uniform parts scattered, you know, women's stuff here, men's stuff here, hats over there, belts back here. And you had to go through and find stuff that fit you until your uniform order could come from Gregory's, I think at the time. So the next thing I know, I am in Washington, DC, my hometown as a park ranger at the Lincoln Memorial and other of these sites. And as it turned out, I would say about 80% of that job was local direction finding. I want to go to this Smithsonian. How do I get there? I want to go to this national park. How do I get there? Well, I, I had those answers because I was from there. So I spent my time learning more about Lincoln and about the about the story of the sculpture and the and the the sculptor. Um, and I was able then to to think about other things in the park service. But especially in the winter, it was so cold because it's I mean, it's marble. It's just an ice box. And you'd have all these layers of clothing underneath your uniform. And so um, they would say, you know, on one hour off and there were a couple of little rooms where you could and there was a heater under the under the table and you could warm up i read a book a day having to do with the national parks freeman tilden a lot of it the fur trade so when i finally got around to going to bench fort i had learned a ton of stuff about the history of the west the santa fe trail the oregon trail and the fur trade now the reason that bench fort kept you know, has has continued to hold my interest. It's not only the first park that welcomed me with open arms, but it's also a place to explore the fur trade, which may have been one of our last important opportunities to make peace with each other. And I'm talking about the Latinos who were part of the Santa Fe trade. Mexico was just on the other side of the Arkansas River from Ben's Fort. So that was an international boundary. Um, it certainly was a chance to, to, to work with American Indian people, and the fur trade sees American Indians more as customers than as combatants. Right. So that's a very different perspective than, say, the Indian Wars, where it's all about fighting and control. Um, and, of course, the personalities included at Ben's Fort, people like uh, Charlotte Green, Dick Green, and his brother Andrew, African-American people who were enslaved by Charles Bent. So there is an ethnic perspective that is often lost because it is rural America. And, you know, even when Dick and Charlotte Green were freed in 1847, based on his going to the Taos Pueblo and engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat with, with people he believed to have been aligned with those who killed Charles Bent, headed east to what is today, what was the, even then, St. Louis. At the same time, St. Louis having recently become a, I mean, Missouri having recently become a state, one of their first laws prohibited free blacks from living in the state. Really? So they, they went from a tough situation to an even tougher one. And they were told that they were, freedom or not, they were not wanted as citizens in a new Missouri.
So those stories captured my attention. And then the people like Jim Beckworth, uh, an African-American from Virginia, who became a major player in the American fur trade as a trapper, a hunter, a scout, a guide. Uh, he owned a Monte parlor, a gambling parlor in Taos, New Mexico. Um, those kinds of stories also really solidified my attention. And it creates an opportunity <clears throat> to help people understand that America was multicultural long before the word was even invented. Something else about the fur trade I find fascinating is that it, at the same time, it is both very hierarchical and, and organized in class structure, while at the same time being multicultural. They had uh, people from the Caribbean. They had African-Americans enslaved and free. They had the French Canadians, Latinos, they had you know, Scots-Irish, they had all sorts of people gravitating to what was a huge business worldwide and the first big business in the United States. In fact, America's first millionaire, John Jacob Astor, came to this country with about $14 worth of flutes and turned that into an amazing fur trade empire, the American fur trade or fur company, and and his his descendants uh, are still you know reveling in the riches that he put together through the fur trade. So the fur trade is more than just sort of a historical footnote. It really is part and parcel of a changing America. Um, you know, and there are implications relative to slavery, to Texas and the Texas Revolution, but also to who America became down the road. So it really has been a place that has has touched me deeply and it's been my honor to be able to go back uh, multiple times in, in a museum, well, as an interpreter, as a museum curator, as a chief ranger. And even now, I just had a phone call last week with the incoming superintendent, a guy named Eric Leonard, and, and we were able to talk about some of these sorts of issues and how interpretation is not as simple as it seems. When you are entrusted with something like the truth, in a post-truth world, you have a tremendous responsibility on your shoulders. Yeah, I think one of the more compelling uh, talks I heard as NAI executive director was by James Lowen talking about lies across America, lies our history teacher taught us. And I'm aware that I had the football coach for history teacher who was having a losing season, so they made him teach history. And uh, here I grew up in this highly historical setting. The second capital of Illinois became the capital mm -hmm. because earthquake on the New Madrid Fault and had really important stories, and I missed those. And I became, I became a biologist and a park ranger, and uh, it took me a while. I had to get involved in the interpretive profession through Association of Interpretive Naturalists to begin to understand that a lot of the untold stories were some of the more important stories, but we had all sorts of social filters in place that didn't let us tell them. Yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But I think another aspect of those social filters is that I think one of the things interpretation is often lacking are highly skilled, highly trained, highly efficient supervisors who can be auditors, who can be coaches, who can be appraisers, 
And so if you just go out and do things um, and nobody's really watching, it tends to spiral downwards. You know, you could talk in the, in the, in the fur trade, we might talk about the bake kettle, also known as a Dutch oven. And, and its development and design and how Lewis and Clark had them and they found remnants of them at Bent's Fort and, and how it was an important way to, 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 to cook almost anything as you traveled throughout the world. Um, but if we're not careful, and I've seen this happen, um, we've got this really important piece of American technology, so we bake cookies. Well, cookies has nothing to do with the kind of struggles people had in moving west. This was more of a survival tool than a recreational tool. But it's easy to sort of spiral down, especially if you don't have the kind of supervisors that are asking the right kinds of questions about, so what, who cares, and, and what do you want me to do about it? And those really are the big interpretive questions. So what? Who cares? And what do you want me to do about it? So um, I, I, that's part of my set of issues, uh, in trying to, to help to uphold a standard of behavior, a standard of care. And, but also in the fur trade, I had the privilege, and that was true in many of the other areas as well, of historical involvement and interpretation. I got to meet scholars people who subject deeply, who think about it daily, who care about the topic, and, and creating a bond between interpreters and historians, clearly, as well as interpreters and scientists. Close enough in interpretation, I would suggest, ain't. If I ask you what your favorite jobs have been, I'm aware from conversations we've had that sometimes you're you're working with great people, you're in a great location, but you have administrative services that are letdowns or that don't support you. Well, sometimes. I mean, sometimes the, uh, people do not understand the difference between management and leadership. The best park experience, without a doubt, were with people who, who were leaders. Um, I'll never forget, I, you know, I got to be chief naturalist at Rocky Mountain National Park. And it was a fantastic job. I probably never, you know, worked harder in my life. But not only was there a fantastic and visionary superintendent, a guy named Randy Jones, but all of the other division chiefs were professionals in the best sense of that word. And they agreed that they would not stab each other's in the back. And so at the end of the year, if, if somebody else had money and they let it be known that they had, they, they give you that money for, for your expenditures. If you had money, you do the same for other, um, you know, uh, division chiefs. And, and, and it was a lovely, lovely scenario um, because you could trust people. And, and, and sometimes in, in administration and bureaucracy, you can't trust people. I'll never forget a squad meeting at Rocky Mountain National Park where the chief ranger said, uh, hey boss, talking to the superintendent, we just got some, some, um, some single shot um, rifles from the army for patrol cars. Okay, well, that's great. And uh, we're gonna you know, clean them and take them apart and sight them in and, and issue them. Okay, that's great. Uh, so you know, you're not telling me all of the story, what's, what's, what's going on? 
the chief ranger, nice guy, very professional, but not really, you know, a person that knew much about firearms said, well, I don't really know how to do all of that stuff. And I raised my hand and the, and the superintendent says, Gwaldi, how do you know how to? And the chief of maintenance piped up and said, you forget, sir, he was in the Civil War. <laughs> and so we all had a great laugh and I helped them get them broken down, clean, sighted in and, and issued out. Um, but I'd also been a law enforcement ranger. I'd also been by that time a park superintendent in a couple of small parks. So I, I knew some stuff that I was able to help out. But it, it, it remains a wonderful high point in my career. Um, but there were so many. I mean, I had lots and lots of great jobs and made jobs into great jobs, sometimes even if they weren't. Um, I was, you know, at the National Mall, got to go back to Bent's Fork as a seasonal, back to the to the Washington area, got a job as um, a naturalist, GS5, at Prince William Forest Park. I was there three days, and the chief ranger said, come see me on Monday. So I went over to see him on Monday, and uh, he said, Gwaltney, can you spell chief naturalist? I said, yes, sir. He said, good, because starting today, you are it. Three days on the job, I knew virtually nothing about the job. I was just learning the resource, but the, the person who had been the chief naturalist had been promoted to some other job in some other park. I had to figure out budget. I had to figure out supervision. I had to figure out property management. We had, in those days, we had a visitor center with, with live animals that had to be cared for and fed. Um, we don't kind of do that much anymore. But uh, that was a big wake-up call. And then, you know, other jobs, uh, back to Bent's Fort, and um, there, there have been some fantastic highlights. But I think that the thing that strikes me is that I had people who believed in me, who believed in the agency, and who believed in the mission. And there were people who let me experiment. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't but you learn from your mistakes and you learn from the mistakes of others. So having people that were sort of sort of experimental in their minds was a great step forward. And, um, you know, they'll give you a lot of rope and either you make a knot or make a problem. I spent eight years in Illinois State Parks and it was largely a patronage system, a political patronage system. And the results you get with that are varied. And uh, uh, I would I gave a presentation at the AIN meeting on Cape Cod in 1980. And uh, a woman from National Park Service asked me to come to Albright Training Center in Grand Canyon and uh, work with the Ranger Skills class for a couple of weeks that September. And I did. And I, I was really aware that uh, it was a much more professional organization with people that uh, kind of took their responsibilities <laughs> much more seriously in it and in a much more professional direction than what I'd been observing. So, well, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, and and of course, nothing is ever perfect anywhere. But when people try to do right, when people have a sense of 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 professionalism, I got to say that. Uh, while there are tons of examples of graft and corruption in government, I don't think I can say I saw any of that in my career in the National Park Service. Inefficiency, perhaps, but nothing intentional. Um, I'll never forget when I was invited, like you, to teach at Albright in the, at the Grand Canyon, um, the, the, the superintendent at the time was a guy named, of, of the training center, 
was a guy named Dave Carricker. I know Dave. And I was coming in with my luggage and, and he came out from behind the, the desk and he said, welcome home. And what a wonderful thing for somebody to say and a wonderful thing to hear. And I will, for, I will never forget that. That, that, you know, he was trying to make me feel at home, but I already was at home. Uh, but it, what a great, great thing to say. Yeah, it was a great experience for me, and I made friends. I, I literally still stay in contact with. It was incredible. Uh, and I went back a second time and uh, was involved again, and Dave was amazing. I yeah. wonder, you were at some of the really iconic African-American sites in the eastern United States. What was that like for you? Well, those were those were very interesting. I mean, I had the opportunity to first be site manager at the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site in Washington. And one of the, the awkward things, I guess I, I have to say, is that when you have, you know, the history that might have a hyphen, you've got to be very careful how much you use that hyphen. Um, that is to say, sometimes it wasn't necessarily taken as seriously. So when I went there as site manager, having already been chief ranger, uh, in the bookstore, there were a number of books for sale, many of which were either outmoded or outdated or contained bad history um, because nobody had taken the time to examine them and to read them all. But there was a book on James Brown, the musician. And I said, well, wait a minute, shouldn't this be a book about, say, John Brown and the raid on Harper's Ferry, who attempted to get Frederick Douglass to join with him in that effort? And the person told me, oh, you wouldn't understand. You're not Black enough. Oh, so we had a little, yeah, well, yes. We had a little, we had a little huddle behind that, and we fixed that problem. But it 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 create, I mean, if you're not careful, if you're not providing the correct amount of support and expectations, you can end up with a tiered approach to, to sort of to, to parks. When I went as the superintendent, my first superintendency at the Booker T. Washington National Historic Site. I noticed that um, tried to, to to keep calm for a bit and watch what was going on. Well, when you came, you were welcomed, and then there was soap making, basket making, candle making, and blacksmithing. And I said, "Okay, how long does all that take?" And they they said, "Well, let's see those." And then that takes about fifty minutes. And I said, "How long is the average visitor stay?" And they said, oh, about an hour. Yeah. So what you're telling me then is we've got 10 minutes to do the real job for which this park was created. And they said, well, you actually know people go to the bookstore in the bathroom. So folks, we have to stop doing dumb things. And they were doing dumb things to prevent from having to talk about enslavery. Slavery, they, they didn't want to talk about slavery and its impact on the young Booker T. Washington. So what I had to do um, after, you know, I gave them time to think about new ways of doing business. They couldn't come up with it. God love them. So I went to the administrative officer and I had what they call a small lot sale. 
and you can take government items and you can put them out for sale by putting up posters and then you sell to the high bidder. So um, we, we put these items out for small lot sale and we sold most of the stuff. Those things that were not sold, we did something else called a board of survey and we surveyed them off as being surplus to government needs. Tim, I actually had a bonfire and burned the wax, the candle making supplies, the soap making supplies. I had to destroy them to keep people from going back into that comfortable world where slavery didn't matter. It was all about arts and crafts. So sometimes that's what a real interpretive manager is to look hard at what's going on, look at this as being in the realm of public history or public science, depending on the, the interpretive focus. And you have to stop what's wrong and start what's right. And it and it's not well received always because people are in the habit of doing something else. Other they're in the habit of doing something else. And and I find in particular when it affects people's feelings of personal comfort, they get very there's a lot of angst about that. I'm comfortable making cookies. I'm comfortable making a quilt. Well, what if making a quilt or cookies doesn't help people come to any conclusion about the meaning of the place, the meaning of the resource? So, so there are awkward bits because especially around things like race, gender, discrimination, people want to make it about their comfort, not about the knowledge that the visitors can obtain. And some of this stuff is contentious even now. So, you know, if we can just make believe it was all happy, and this is uh, that that I have with with uh, TV shows and series and movies like, um, the, like Bridgerton or um, Queen Charlotte, or uh, what's the other one? But but there's there's several that that have depicted the past in a clearly multicultural aspect that was not true at the time in those places. And people are, uh, you know, Americans in particular are so taken by televised, you know, shows and Hollywood movies that they accept that as a reality. So now you have to fight that. But you also, I think it creates what I call the Bridgerton effect, where people think, well, that problem's been solved. We've had a multicultural society, you know, worldwide for years. So there's no reason to recognize and fight, uh, you know, there's modern slavery. There's more slavery today than there was in the 1850s. We don't have to fight racism. We don't have to fight sexism. We don't have to fight any of these things that are still living legacies of our past. And, and it's really for because we have to be thoughtful about how that seeps in to interpretation. Um, how people become so attached to these stories. Recently, in my work with uh, people in American history, there has there has been for many years now this concept of a woman who was the first woman in the Buffalo Soldiers. Kathy Williams is the name that's often ascribed. Her name was William Kathy. It turns out, and this is now good history from multiple degreed historians. Kathy Williams was never a biological woman. 
he was a biological male who was an indifferent soldier, left the army after leaving the army, began to dress in women's clothing. Uh, that, that's clearly documented. Over time, found himself in Colorado mental institutions, um, was again clearly identified as a biological male. In a rare instance of 19th century sensitivity, they actually assigned him for a while to a women's mental asylum. And the matrons there said, uh, you know, because this is not a biological woman. But there are people who said, I hear what you're saying. I recognize there's historical proof that this didn't happen, but it's such a sexy story. We're going to continue to tell it anyway. And these are these are groups and individuals that otherwise would have you believe that they really are invested in good historical interpretation, which sadly not. Yeah. Again, it goes to comfort and prestige. I was going to say earlier when you were talking about the candle making and soap making, Lisa Brochu, my wife and co-trainer when we do training, uh, we often talk about that the early training in the 70s that we were see seeing, and I was doing because I took over the training for seasonal interpreters in Illinois, and um, we had 55 of them. And much of what we were teaching them was how to start a fire with flint and steel, how to make candles by dipping them, uh, soap making. Um, gimmicks, gadgets, and goodies was actually the title of one of the major segments of professional meetings. And it kind of characterized how we saw our field. And I've told the story before, but um, they, during a budget cut, they fired 18 of 22 full-time interpreters and in all 55 seasonals in Illinois. And when I asked the director why they did that, he said, well, let me ask you. I fired them a year ago. No, no superintendents asked for their interpreter back and nobody from the public's written a letter. What were they doing? And as one of the four survivors, I had to admit that most of the programs we were doing were things we knew how to do or we enjoyed doing or that were personal hobbies taken to work. They, they weren't telling the story of the community or the park. Right. Well, you're, you're exactly right. And of course, the problem is that if you look at, you know, the, 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 the larger scale set of stories, uh, there are probably multiple sort of, of cubby holes, but three I can identify immediately. There's sociology, how people get along or don't get along with each other. There's ideology, what people think about and how they think and how that changes over time. And there's technology. Well, the easiest one to learn and practice is technology. We've learned that the history of the Civil War has changed markedly between the 1960s and today. Um, there's all sorts of studies and, 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 and historical research going on about how people relate to one another, how they don't relate to one another. Um, you know, the, 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 and, and we have to remember too, historiography, which is the study of the study of history. It's not like there's one message and there's a danger in trying to suggest there is only one story. There's multiple stories. And one of the things that, that I've tried, as I have so many people, to really suggest that multiple points of view are in fact important, but we live in a time in a world where censorship is being made more and more normalized. And I think that's a huge issue for interpretation. 
it's scary. I see what's going on in Florida with uh, passing laws that tell teachers what they can or cannot teach. And in the same voice talking about protecting freedom. And exactly. I, I, it's baffling how you're protecting freedom by telling people which books to burn and uh, what stories to tell. Well, you know, it's about it's about me protecting my yeah. do with your freedom. Yeah, my personal. You know, yeah, and and so that is, and of course, one of the things that I think is worth mentioning is that things have moved so fast and so far that interpreters, whether they were doing, you know, state of the art, first rate interpretation, or making soap and candles, the culture wars has moved to where we're now on the front lines. And many of us are not prepared to be on the front lines of a culture war. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm aware I have not had the training to deal with some of these issues. And I'm, I'm wondering how well our agencies are figuring this out on the ground, because it's complicated. It's extraordinarily complicated. And in my career, I had the, the great opportunity to work specifically in diversity and diversifying the out of doors, uh, both with history and nature and science for, for 10 years, for an entire decade. And even with all of that work, things move so fast and they move in such a weird pattern. It's not easy to figure this out. It's easier to become part of a gang. And you might be the, the right wing gang, you might be the left wing gang, but gangs create their own psychology. And it's often not about a conversation. It's about me right, you wrong, get out of my way. That that again is almost antithetical to the purpose and mission of interpretation. Did did it not lead to you getting involved with movies to some degree? To uh... well, I, I think when you do public history, that that it tends in that direction. But I, I think when I was at the Frederick Douglass home, um, I got a phone call. I was in the basement of the building, and of course. Like many historic sites, it was built for a single family, and now we have tens of thousands of visitors a year, so they had to install I-beams in the basement after the house had already been built, and that was a chore. So it was kind of cramped, but it was a way to get away from the noise, because we were we literally had our offices in and amongst the second floor of Douglas's house. My office was literally in a closet. The, the, the desk was longer than the closet itself, so it extended out. So I went in the basement and uh, I got a call from, from one of the staff and they said, there's somebody on the phone who wants to talk to you. And I said, well, you know who it is now? So, well, okay, put him on. And a voice came on and said, Mr. Waltney, you don't know us, but we know you. We'd like you to be in a Hollywood movie. And I said, literally, I said, which one of my blankety blank college buddies is this? Because I don't have time right now. And the guy said, no, I am... Ray Herbeck from TriStar Pictures. This is a legitimate call. And we know that you've been involved with African-American military history, living history. Um, and we want you to, to help form a company for a movie, which at the time was going to be called Lay This Laurel, which is the name of a book about the 54th Massachusetts. It ended up, of course, being called Glory. So the next thing I know, I have been connected with a guy named Brian Pohanka, 
who was a full-time Civil War historian, a brilliant, brilliant guy, and another guy named Jack Thompson, who uh, both of whom had been in the 5th New York Zouave regiments in the Washington, D.C. area. So Brian would be the captain, Jack would be the, uh, the first lieutenant, and I'd be the, the first sergeant. And so I had had some experience with hardcore African-American living history. I had become a member of a group called the General Miles Marching and Chowder Society, a kind of silly name for a very serious-minded group that did Indian Wars infantry around the West. And I'd already done that for probably 10 years. Plus, I'd already worked at Fort Davis in Texas, where I was literally a Buffalo soldier on horseback three days out of five, and then in park service uniform two days out of five. So I had done it pretty much to the, you know, to the to the ends of the earth. So they had found me somehow. And um, I went to my boss. She was very supportive. Her name was Dottie Benton. And the next thing you know, I'm meeting with Pohanka and Thompson. And we got together on the, the hill. Um, this house is built in Washington, D.C. And we, we, we talked about how this might be made to work. So we came up with a, a concept plan. And we were going to do a recruiting event. And we would do it at the, um, the auditorium that was dug under the ground under near Douglas's house by the park service. So it was would be a Friday night and we put information out. I'd been on the Howard University radio station and here's this big opportunity. We're gonna train you guys, we're gonna help you get equipped and we're gonna be in a movie. And here we brought our folding chairs. So there's, and I'm in my Civil War uniform as is Jack and as is Brian. And it's supposed to be at seven o'clock and it's 6.30 and there's nobody here yet. It's 6.45, there's nobody here yet. It's five to seven and there's nobody here yet. We're thinking, well, this was a great try, but this is not going anywhere. Well, wait, at seven o'clock, here comes a car. Here's another car. Here's a third car. The next thing you know, there's so many cars, the parking lot's full and we've got to park up and down the street. And so we got together and, and the, the way it was supposed to work is um, Brian was going to do a piece on the Civil War. Jack was going to do a piece on living history in, in the Civil War. And I was going to do a piece on African-Americans in the Civil War. So we had it all figured out and we started the program and it would go very well. And then all of a sudden the, the chatter volume would go up and it would get so loud that, you know, you couldn't carry on. I would say, fellas, we got a lot to get through here tonight. Let's, um, let's calm down. And it would get better. And, you know, Jack would do his bit. And I hadn't done my bit yet. And the, the chatter volume came up again. I finally said, okay, look, we got a lot to go through. We're glad you're here, but what the heck is going on? And there was one guy named Rick Falcon who raised his hand. He says, I think I can tell you what's going on. I said, tell me. He said, well, we haven't met each other before now, but I think all of us have always been interested in the Civil War. We kind of knew there was an African-American side to the story. We never really felt comfortable in national parks and historic sites. We never even really felt comfortable in museums. And now we've met each other. We can't stop talking. Wow. And it was a, a wonderful moment 
because we had discovered that we'd come up with the exact right thing at the exact right time in order to make this thing happen. So um, because I had done some of this stuff, I was able to train them from a manual. We took advantage of trainings from people at Fort Washington and Antietam National Battlefield Park. Um, we became a super hardcore, trained to the teeth kind of group, even before we had the uniforms and equipments. We literally used, you know, wooden rods um, for, for rifles. For and then we were at Fort Washington on one of several uh, occasions to do training, which is a, an old pre-Civil War fort on the Potomac across the river from Mount Vernon. And I don't know, to this day, I don't know who arranged for this, but the UPS truck shows up and almost exactly like the film, like the, the scene in the movie, the guys get their uniforms and muskets off the back of a UPS truck. And all of a sudden they go from civilians to soldiers. And it was, it, it presaged the movie. The scene in the movie was amazing. So we would drill and drill and drill some more. And one day it was raining. So we actually went to the park police and asked them if we could drill in their, uh, in their gym. And they said, sure. We had the fellows take their shoes off because the shoes have you know, metal heels and nails in them. And, and in our stocking, stocking feet, we drilled in the park police gym. Um, and so these guys were getting more and more skilled at the military drill and the living history bits. The uniforms were, were pretty good. Who were these guys? Were they from all different walks of life? That's a great question. The reason we think, we ended up with taking like 37, 40 guys to the film the reason that we think this works so well in Washington, D.C. environs is that it is a city that has for many years had a strong African-American middle class. So when you think about it, you not only have to have the expendable capital to, to, to order a uniform and a musket and all of these other accoutrements, but you have to have the time away from the family. And as you'll see, you'll have to have the time away from the job. So you have to be comfortably ensconced in terms of both family and in terms of, of things like work, have enough money and transportation to make it work. And Washington, D.C. provided all of those things. So uh, these were fellows who were, gosh, so, uh, a couple of lawyers. One of them is, is still a doctor. Um, the people who worked in, in various industries, people who were electricians, who worked for the gas company, some teachers. Uh, um, we had people from all, uh, military people, Navy people. One of our early guys was um, on the staff of General Colin Powell down at the Pentagon uh, in, the, in the mail and communications department. So we had tons of fabulous people. In fact, these are people I often say I should have known earlier and just didn't. So it really was, I mean, talk about a band of brothers. It was exactly that. But here we are, and here I am dragging them, not only through Civil War drill, but when we would go and camp, I would ensure that the food was the same as at the time. So, you know, they're being pulled in a lot of different directions. They're reading like mad. Uh, one of the, the stories I love to tell is that one of, one of the, the early guys in the, in the company, a guy named Jerry Brown, was down at the National Archives looking up uh, African-American Civil War records. And he meets another guy who's looking through the same sets of files. 
he's African-American too. And Jerry says, wow, what brings you down here? And the guy says, oh, some guy named Bill Gwaltney made me come here. Yeah. And Jerry Brown said, yeah, me too. So all of this stuff came together. I had great support from the Park Service. I had to take um, weeks and weeks of leave without pay, but nobody gave me any problem about that. And my boss back in Colorado, because I was still technically the chief ranger doing that job by long distance, um, he let me go for a year, which would enhance my promotion potential and give me more experience. Um, Don Hill was his name. And when, when he wanted me for a couple more weeks to finish the film, um, I called Don. I said, Don, I'd like to have a couple more weeks to finish this film. He said, sorry, you've been gone a year. I need you back now. Yes, sir. Got in the car, went back to Colorado. Um, about a year later, the film came out. Uh, we did it in 88. It came out in 89. And Don called from some superintendent's conference halfway across the country. And he was sort of emotional. I said, Don, what's up? He said, well, I just saw your film. I said, it's not my film, but, but thanks. He said, had I known what it was about, of course I would have given you the extra time. Um, I just had no idea. And I just wanted to call and tell you how proud I am. So uh, I had tremendous support, um, both you know, from, from the Park Service there and the Park Service in Colorado to, to involve myself in that film. And I got to say, I took that job as chief, uh, as first sergeant, probably as seriously as any job I've ever had anywhere. Uh, we were down to the brass tacks and our guys were so well-trained when we got to the movie set, they would peel some of my guys off to teach other companies how to do stuff like McClellan's bayonet exercise. Uh, they had been through the mill. And, and they can and they are still together today over 30 years later. There's still a 54. You know, we, company B. The, the guys in Company B, we, we have we have Zoom meetings every month, and they're still doing living history presentations, although there's some people who passed away and, and certainly some new people who've joined. But it's still going, and it was formed even originally as a National Park Service volunteer in parks unit. I know in Filming of Glory, you you met some celebrities with uh, some of the main characters. Uh, how did that feel? I mean, what was the trajectory? Well, that was an interesting, interesting time because we were we all, all sort of had this this purpose that we shared, and and I'm very proud to suggest that even 30 plus years later, Glory still holds up very well as an American Civil War film. Denzel Washington was great to watch, standoffish. He was already very well known. Uh, he had the scene in which he is whipped, which of course is ahistorical in terms of army policy. I saw him do that three times. And I'm here to tell you that he made himself cry each time. No one sprayed onion juice in his eyes. No one put any kind of irritant in his general direction. He made himself cry, which I thought was incredible. Um, Jimmy Kennedy, who played Jupiter Shark, was a nice young man. Um, I was very impressed with Morgan Freeman, who, who turns out to be just as nice a guy in real life as he seems to be on the screen. He became a sort of our unofficial morale officer. 
would come around to see how people were doing, how people were feeling, because we were sleeping on the ground. We were eating pretty, pretty poor chow at one point, which we finally got fixed. Um, and there were several times when I used sort of my historical and interpretive knowledge to fix a problem that, that they didn't see. There were a couple of, of uh, filmed clashes between Union and Confederate that looked more like a cotillion dance. And I went to the Confederate commanders during a break and I said, look, the next time they yell action, let's do this instead of that. And they said, sounds good to us. And we did it our way, the way it would have happened in the Civil War. And the director finally yells, cut. That's not what I wanted, but I like it, so print it. Oh, wow. So we actually did little things to make the film better outside of the knowledge uh, and permission of the director. Ed, Z Ed Zwick was his name. Were you paid actors? I mean, were you paid SAG? Um, I was paid as an, uh, as an assistant technical uh, associate or whatever. That is to say, um, if you were just a soldier, it was $50 a day. If you were a technical person, it was $100 a day. And then there were people above me that the technical, well, there was a technical advisor who was a guy named Dale Fetzer. And then the real super technical guy was, in fact, the guy I was working with, the associate producer, Ray Herbeck. So there were lots of people who had different levels of knowledge. The director didn't always want to hear that, but we inserted it when we could. I think that's great. Well, Bill, thanks for being with me today. We've gone through one hour. We're going to meet again and do another hour. And we're going to get into some of your history in Paris, France, with the American Battle Monuments Commission. and other things about living history. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, Tim, thanks very much. I got to tell you that my interpretive career has allowed me to go many places, to do many things, to interact with many people, but it has been and continues to be an adventure, both uh, physically and intellectually. And it's something that um, very few other professions allow for. I agree with you. Well, I'll see you next week. Outstanding. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining Bill and I today. We've finished the first hour of a two-hour segment with Bill Gwaltney. Join us Friday for that second segment. Thanks to Mark Stoffel for the beautiful mandolin work on Heidi's World from his 101 album. Join us for an interpretive planning workshop with Lisa Brochu via Zoom, August 21st to 24th from 8 to 11 a.m. And you can register at heartfeltassociates.com. And thanks for joining us today. Have a wonderful day. Aloha.